Tuesday, August 27th here at Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schaff. With me, as always, is Jared Smola, and we will be talking with a guest today, Dwayne McFarland. He's going to break down all the trends, winners and losers that you need to know about from the preseason, as well as what it all means for your draft. We'll get to that in a little bit. This show, of course, is sponsored by the FFPC, where main event drafting has begun We saw the first round of drafts last weekend online. There will be a fresh set of online drafts this week. And then, of course, the annual live event next week in Las Vegas. You still have time to enter. Take your shot at a grand prize of half a million dollars. But that time is running out. So head over to MyFFPC.com today. That's M-Y-F-F-P-C.com. Jared, as I mentioned, we'll have an interview with Dwayne McFarlane coming up. But before we get to that... We have a couple of big changes from Saturday night to address. It was a busy Man. Saturday night to be a fantasy writer. I, I think I've been doing this 11 years now. That that was the craziest like hour in NFL news because you had Lamar Miller, who I think I think right away you knew it was a season-ending injury. Um, and then like you know 30 minutes later, that was like on the back burner because Andrew Luck freaking <laughs> retired. So it was a crazy night, a long night. I woke up the next morning. I was like, you know, did did that really happen? Is Andrew Luck retired? I think we all thought that. Adam Schefter's yeah. uh, Twitter handle had been hacked at first yes. because no nobody was expecting Andrew Luck to retire, but it is true. It happened. It's official at this point, and so that means we have to look at the fantasy impact, and I think where you have to start is two years ago when Andrew Luck missed the entire season because of a shoulder injury, shoulder surgery, did not make it back as expected, and then the Colts spent an entire season with Jacoby Brissett as their starting quarterback like they will this season, and they finished that season 30th in scoring, 31st in total yards. Yeah, it's nice to have that one year to sort of look back on. I would say a few things, though. My my first thing is, and you can't work this into projections, but what's the morale of this Colts team like right now? I mean, they, they, I thought they were Super Bowl contenders, you know, with a top five quarterback, and then everything we've heard is that, you know, no one outside maybe the upper management of the Colts knew that Luck was even considering retirement, so I think this hit all the players out of the blue, so like, you know, what where does this team go from here now? And what is that going to mean for, you know, the fancy production of these guys? And the second thing, and it's more, I think, good news for Brissett and these guys is that it's a completely different team than it was in 2017. It's a new coaching staff. Um, they've built what's one of the better offensive lines in the NFL and the weapons are a lot better. I mean, you had T.Y. Hilton and Jack Doyle back in 2017, but then it was like Chester Rogers and Kamar Aiken. So I think, it's not going to be as bad as it was in 2017, but you know, obviously going from Andrew Luck to Jacoby Brissett is a significant downgrade. Right. before The season before that, they were 8th in scoring, 10th in yards. The season after that, which was last year, 5th in scoring, 7th in yards. So obviously some of that is the impact of Andrew Luck. Another part of that, I think, is we have a good offensive core there, and Jacoby Brissett himself should be better set up to succeed this year. That season, it's it's easy to forget, he only joined the Colts on September 2nd of that year. They right. traded for him because Andrew Luck was out and they needed a better answer at quarterback. It wasn't like he spent all offseason. This time around, Jacoby Brissett has that 2017 of experience as a starter. He then spent all of 2018 with Luck back on the team and with the team himself. That was Frank Reich's first season. Now he's had the whole offseason to work as the starter. I mean, Andrew Luck got on the field a tiny bit. But basically not at all. It's basically been Jacoby Brissett working as a starter. So 59% completions, 2.8% touchdown rate, 6.6 yards per attempt last time as a starter. He can't have numbers that low again and and have this be a good offense. But there's a, a pretty good chance that we at least improve on all of those. Yeah, I think he'll improve. Um, if for no other reason, then the supporting cast is better. Like you said, you know, luck being sidelined with the ankle calf thing ended up being a blessing in disguise because Brissett has, has been working as the starter basically all offseason. Small sample, obviously, in that second preseason game. We did go 8 of 10 for 100 yards and a touchdown to Eric Ebron. Um, Brissett right now ranks 30th in PFF's passing grades among 102 qualifying quarterbacks this preseason. So, you know, it looks like he he's better than he was back in 2017. Um, you know, as far as just Brissett's fantasy value, I ran my initial projections like as soon as the luck thing happened. And, and Brissett came out 16th in our quarterback rankings. And a lot of that is because the guy, the guy can run. Um, he ran for 899 yards and nine touchdowns over his final two seasons at NC State. 
in 2017 as the starter for, you know, 15 games, 260 yards and four touchdowns. So, you know, we, we ended up knocking him down from quarterback 16. You know, we don't want folks to be drafted <laughs> that high. Um, you know, the Colts open at the Chargers, so Brissett's not going to be a fantasy option that week. But I think there are certain times this season where he, he's going to be a spot start option, at least in deeper leagues. Again, he has the elite offensive line. He has plenty of weapons at his disposal. Then you throw in some rushing upside, and, you know, again, I think he's going to be an option deeper leagues, and, and definitely maybe, you know, a cheap DF, DFS play. I want to say he put up a top 12 week at Seattle in 2017 with the Colts on like a Sunday night where and they were, when they were still a good defense. Yeah. I remember using him in DFS in 2017. I can tell you, I can tell you that much. And, you know, maybe it didn't always go well, but, you know, I, I think he, he did have some useful games. Yeah, there's definitely upside to him. I, I, like you said, I'm not going to draft him at QB 16, but he certainly could finish in that range because of the rushing, because there are good players around him, because it's a it, sh- it should be a good offense still with good coaching. Like you said, I wouldn't play him against the Chargers in week one, but week two, they're at Tennessee. It's also probably not like a redraft starting spot. Could be a DFS spot, depending on cost. After that, though, at home against the Falcons, we go. at home against the Raiders. Yeah. So those will be the two weeks that really tell us if Jacoby Brissett's a usable fantasy quarterback. I think more important, though, is what the change means for the pieces around him, the guys that we are all drafting at some point. And the big one is T.Y. Hilton, who posted a 52.3% catch rate in the previous Brissett season, 58.7% the season before that, 63% last year. So much bigger numbers on either side of the Brissett season. And T.Y. Hilton's yards per target have gone 10.3, 8.4, 9.3, 8.9, 10.6 over the past five years. Those two down years are those two seasons that Andrew Luck first missed nine games and then missed all of the year. Yeah, I mean, you can't convince me that going from Luck to Brissett helps anyone on this Colts offense. I think, you know, they all either moved down our rankings or stayed in the same spot. That goes for T.Y. Hilton. Um, he, he finished 27th among wide receivers in PPR points in that Brissett season. Hilton led the Colts in targets that year with 109 targets. It was like a 22% target share, which is sort of where he's been even with luck. But that was a that was a low mark in targets because the Colts went so run heavy. They were mm-hmm. they were 48% run in 2017. I'd say I'm pretty sure they're going to run more now than you know pre Andrew Luck retirement. But I also don't think they're going to go 48% run because again I think Brissett's probably better. The weapons are here. The weapons sort of say this should be a pass leaning team. So Hilton moved down our rankings. Um, you know, he's still in wide receiver two range for me. Like, I think like the fifth round, like maybe once, um, you know, the Rams wide receivers or at least Woods and Cooks are off the board, Chris Godwin, once he's off the board, I would start to consider a T.Y. Hilton in that range because I still think he's a great player. He's still the clear lead number one here. And again, I think Brissett is going to be good enough. Yeah, unfortunately, according to draft.com ADP, still going around the three, four turn and drafting since Saturday, wide receiver 14. Uh, that's, that's a little too high for me with yes. T.Y. Hilton. Yeah. Although I, 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 think he's going to drop farther than that but yeah. I, I guess we'll see we'll see that's just the beginning of people reacting yeah. and figuring out where to draft him I, i'm not sure it's going to go a lot farther um marlon mack also in the same range round three four turn running back 19 and you know everybody's going to have them drop some but i think he's going to have to probably get to the four five turn before yeah. i look at him at this point at least yeah he dropped in our rankings a few spots i mean we actually gave him a few extra carries because again you know we do at this point are going to project the colts to run a bit more but you have to think his efficiency is going to go down you know facing more defensive attention more seven eight men boxes and scoring um, opportunities, scoring opportunities be down. Yeah. yeah he was he was top 10 in the nfl last year and carries inside the 10 and the five yard line you know i, I we, we took a couple touchdowns off his projection so he's on the way down What's super important with Mac now, though, is you know we, we all offseason we thought he was going to be a two down back and come off the field in passing situations, uh, passing downs for Naheem Hines. In that second preseason game, though, Mac you know was on the field for 16 of 18 snaps, including all of the third downs and the one fourth down. That's going to be much more important now because the Colts are not going to be playing with so many leads. They're going to be you know playing catch up in passing situations more often. So that's going to be interesting. You know, if we get to week one and Mac is essentially a three down back you know that he's obviously going to be easier to rely on in fantasy lineups versus if he's seeding those passing down snaps to Naheem Hines still that's going to be trouble because you know the Colts are again are not going to be playing out in front as much this season yeah I think if Marlon Mack's going to deliver value on his draft price at this point it's not going to be because he scores 12 touchdowns most likely it's going to be more likely because he catches 50 balls and we were only expecting 32 exactly Anybody else on that? I mean, Eric Ebron yeah. had already actually slid. He's an early round nine, which is 
okay. I, I still, I, I don't remember the last time I drafted Ebron. Yeah, he moved down our rankings. I mean, we were already lower on him than consensus. But yeah, let's just talk about the tight ends in general. You know, Jack Doyle, back in 2017, that Brissett season, finished second on the team with 108 targets. It was only one fewer target than T.Y. Hilton. Um, Doyle was fifth among all tight ends in targets that season. He was second among all tight ends with 80 catches. And saw a great note from uh, Pro Football Focus's Scott Barrett on Twitter. Um, Jacoby Brissett has targeted tight ends on 27.3% of his throws in the preseason as a pro, 27.6% of his throws uh, during the regular season. Just compare that to the league average, which is right around 18.5%. So, you know, it's still a relatively small sample, but what we've seen from Brissett so far is that he does like targeting those tight ends. And the Colts have two good tight ends still. So Doyle is a guy who, you know, we didn't move him up. We also didn't move him down. I think he, he to me, becomes more interesting as a tight end to spot start option with, with Brissett under center. I agree. And, I mean, Devin Funches, Paris Campbell are basically going late enough that it doesn't really matter. You're taking a shot. You're not drafting them as starters. We'll see what that happens. Yeah, I mean, those guys really were, like, priority targets for me in the double-digit rounds. Um, now they're, yeah, they, you know, they, they'd have to just sort of be sitting there in, like, the 13th, mm-hmm. 14th for me to really bite. Yeah, no longer excited, but still, you know, within play. Uh, of course, the other one was Lamar Miller's knee injury just before the Andrew Luck retirement. Tore an ACL. I believe he also tore a second ligament in there. Either way, going to miss the season. And that makes Duke Johnson the new lead back shortly after arriving in Houston. So well, let's start with his new price because mm-hmm. everybody, you know, we all know that Duke Johnson's in for a much bigger ceiling than he had. Early round seven on draft, if you look at drafting since Saturday, starting with Sunday's drafts. If you look at only Monday and Tuesday, as of this recording, it was early round six. So, as we said, still moving. I think early round six is still a good range for Duke Johnson. I am fine with him in round five, and I might even start looking at him in round four. Yeah, I'm going to be closely monitoring where his ADP goes from here because he he is a target. He's a guy I want to draft at this point now, and I think fifth round seems more than fair. Fourth round, you know, once, you know, Chris Carson, I'd still take over Duke Johnson. I'd still lean towards Mark Ingram, uh, Josh Jacobs over Duke Johnson, even in PPR leagues. But after that, I mean, I think he he's right there. You know, I think he's sitting like 21st in our rankings now among running backs and PPR points. And I, I think that I would take Duke Johnson straight up over Josh Jacobs because I think there's a higher reception ceiling and I expect his offense to be a lot yeah. better than Oakland's. I, I, I don't think that's crazy at all. I mean, we're, we're going to have to see, look for clues from Houston of how they plan to use Duke Johnson. And we'll, I, I do think they're going to add something else to this backfield. They almost have to. It's Taiwan Jones and a couple undrafted rookies behind Duke Johnson on the depth chart now. And we're going to see... Guys like, you know, Kenneth Dixon, TJ Yeldon probably get cut over the next week. So Houston's going to add someone. I don't think they could add anyone, though, that is a better runner and definitely not a better pass catcher than Duke Johnson. So sort of no matter what, I, I think he, he's going to be the lead guy in this Texans backfield. And it's just a matter of, you know, how much work Houston's willing to give him. Yeah, and we saw over the past what, three years that they were willing to overwork Lamar Miller, even when they didn't want to. Even when Bill O'Brien was talking about how they needed to give him less work, they <laughs> right. still overworked him I don't see any reason to expect less from Duke Johnson and I I think we said it before when they traded for him I think Duke Johnson's a better player than Lamar Miller straight up it based on how they both produced at Miami what they've done to this point the difference of course is that we've seen Lamar Miller as a feature back we've only seen Duke Johnson as the pass catching back in a backfield where he was not getting enough use that's going to go away this year the offensive line is still a concern But I think the offense and the reception ceiling and the fact that he's probably not going to climb into the top four rounds in ADP Mm -hmm. lessens the concern there. Yeah, I mean, you said that there's unknown with Duke Johnson as a lead ball carrier at the NFL level, but the guy's 210 pounds. I think think people think he's like 195 Mm -hmm. just because he's been used as this, you know, change of pace, pass catching back, but he's 210 pounds. He was a workhorse in his final season at Miami. 242 rush attempts that season, averaged 6.8 yards per carry, and he's been good in the NFL, even with, you know, bigger workloads, he's, he's had only four games with double digit carries, but he's averaged 5.4 yards per carry in those games. So I think the guy can do it. And, you know, Houston almost has no choice at this point, but, you know, give him a pretty big ball carrying role. Yeah. Try to get Duke Johnson in your drafts this week. We will have updated perfect drafts on DraftSharks.com this Thursday to show you exactly where you should do it. Of course, MVP board's updated now. So if you're drafting Tuesday night, Wednesday, the MVP board's got you. We'll tell you where you should start looking at Duke Johnson. 
Now we're going to welcome to the pod a guest, Dwayne McFarland. He is, by day, he's a healthcare analytics guy, but we care more about the fantasy stuff, of course. Uh, he is an analyst for football guys. He is an analyst for Matt Waldman's rookie scouting portfolio. He is the co-host of the Fantasy Football Hustle podcast, and he's a three-time top five finisher in the FFPC, a go-to source for preseason analysis, and that's why we've got him on this show. Check him out at Dwayne McFarland on Twitter. Dwayne, thanks for joining us today. Man, just happy to be on. We are one week closer, guys, to real football. Yes, we are. And if you guys aren't following Dwayne on Twitter, you're you're really missing out. Um, his Twitter handle is Dwayne McFarland. It's D W A I N M C F A R L A N D. Um, you know, he, he's been honestly. I'm not just saying this because he's on the pod here. He's been like my favorite follow this preseason. I've been watching the games, but Dwayne is like really watching the games and really breaking down the usage and the things we need to be looking for. So, so Dwayne, before we get to the winners and losers, I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, when you're watching and breaking down these preseason games, what exactly are you looking for? And, you know, what what matters to you when we're trying to analyze what it means for these guys' fantasy values? Yeah, first, I'm trying to determine if my eyes work as well at the end of each film session, <laughs> because you just feel like, I mean, especially in preseason, I know you guys watch the stuff too, but there's, you don't have all 22. So sometimes you've got to watch like a clip of, you know, uh, a particular play like four or five times just to see who's lining up at the line of scrimmage, right? To see who's in and you're squinting. You're like, is that a seven or is that a nine? You know, uh, so it's pretty time intensive, but no, uh, big picture what I'm looking for. Um, whenever I'm thinking about preseason and analyzing it is, you know, there's a few different things. One, you know, you always want to know, are the starters in the game and who's who's not playing? Right. Because that the context that you want to that you're really looking for is are the starters in? And in some games, starters don't play any, you know, and each team's different. You know, like this year in week one of the preseason, which many teams won't play anybody, you know, there were several teams that actually played their first string offense, you know, for the first drive or first drive and a half. And so those drives are more important than the others whenever you're trying to determine pecking order. And used to it was much easier because pretty much the third preseason game was the dress rehearsal for everybody. Well, that's not the case anymore. I mean, we had multiple teams this past weekend just not even play any of their starters. They're more interested in getting guys rest. So it also depends on each team. So what's the team trying to do? You know, if it's a young team that's trying to determine a pecking order or if it's a it's a team maybe that actually has established starters, but is trying to determine who they're going to cut. That could actually that could actually mean certain receivers may even play in the first drive with a starting quarterback. You know, so you don't want to jump to conclusions. Oh, my gosh, this guy's going to be a starter. You have to really dig into each team, understand their construction, understand what you think they're trying to accomplish. And so it's a little bit different you know, for each one from that, from that particular regard. One thing I really do value highly though, and it's been pretty consistent for me over the years watching preseason is if you've got a team trying to install a new offense, you typically are going to get a much better feel for what they're going to do in the preseason. As far as personnel groupings go, as far as who their starters are, as far as who their situational players are, because those teams are truly the preseason actually matters because they're trying to build their foundation for their offense for the rest of the season. They're not going to reveal their punches and counter punches and how they're going to sequence plays and special packages. They're not going to reveal all of that. But what they will do is they're going to get down their basics. And then those are the fundamentals. That's what they're going to build everything else off of. So personnel groupings usually aren't disguised a lot, except for, like I said, like wrinkles, little packages and things they'll throw in. But your typical uh, groupings are the ones that you'll continue to see through the preseason. Another thing that you you can often pick up is situational things like third down backs, um, slot receivers. You Those things tend to hold better going into the preseason, especially if you're dealing with a team that's installing a new offense. Now, if you've got another list that you might want to be checking, it's really around player development. So if you've got a player that you know was a rookie last year and you kind of have an idea of what was holding him back, this is a great opportunity in the preseason to go look for those things. So for example, um, a guy we'll probably talk about in a minute, James Washington, didn't know the playbook very well last year, couldn't really demand targets you know, from the first team offense, was running a lot of different things like go routes, fade routes, things like that. It wasn't really working to the interior of the field on digs and slants and different things like that. So I kind of had a checklist in mind around James Washington. Here are the things that I want to see. And so I will do that with players. I also do that with rookies. Daryl Henderson's a guy we'll talk about in a minute. We know was going from a power scheme in Memphis, and now he's going to be in a scheme that runs, you know, inside zone and wide zone nearly every play. How is that going to translate? So I know that's a lot, but that's the thing with preseason is you can't just go, if you just look at it from a vanilla approach, your determination is just going to be that preseason doesn't matter. 
when in fact it does, it just matters much more for certain players and teams than others. Right. And as you alluded to, different things are going to matter for different teams and different uh, players. When you mention new offensive schemes, I think the Cardinals are going to jump to everybody's mind. So what have you seen or what did you see if if we're done seeing the starters? What did you see from this new Cardinals offense scheme standpoint, personnel grouping? What are your takeaways overall from the Cardinals? Yeah, a few things on the Cardinals that stick out to me. Number one is they are installing the basics of air raid. I think it's funny when I'm, you know, I'll hear Twitter, you know, folks on Twitter that will say, oh, this doesn't matter. They're not revealing anything. Yeah, they're not revealing anything, but if they can't do these things, there's nothing to reveal. <laughs> like you've got to be able to do the basics. And they're really struggling. The number one thing that I see is the offensive line is terrible. Anytime they go to 10 personnel or anytime they're in an obvious pass and down, you know, down and distance situation, there's a ton of pressure on Kyler Murray. And it isn't just from blitzes. You know, two weeks ago, there were more blitzes, you know, so Kyler had to take on some of those looks. But there have been multiple times when it's just a four man rush and his two starting tackles and guards and center are all in the game and he's immediately being pressured. And so then when you see the way Kyler's responding to that and the way he wants to handle it, which is much like a rookie, he's not comfortable staying in the pocket. He wants to run like he did in college. He wants to get outside of the pocket. And those are the areas where if he doesn't, if he can't create space to reset his feet and make the throws, which he had time to do in college, here he's having to stay on the run. And I don't know how much you guys have watched, but he's overthrown Christian Kirk like five times like just right over his head. He's done it to Larry Fitzgerald too. So these are things that we actually saw in the bowl game against Alabama. In the, in the first half, they put pressure on him and they made mm-hmm. him move around and he was terrible. He came on in the second half of half of that game, but the reason why is because they weren't trying to put pressure and he knew what look was coming. They were basically at too high, uh, man under. They were just trying to basically not give away a big play uh, to Oklahoma late in that game. And so a lot of folks will say, oh, well, Murray adjusted. No, actually, he didn't. Alabama Mm -hmm. just basically said, "Okay, we've won. We're just not going to give up a big play and we're not going to lose the game that way. So I'm seeing those things uh, come through for Murray. Same thing for David Johnson. It looks really bad. Like each time he gets the ball with his starters in, there's penetration into the backfield. He's doing his best to make it just look average. But I'm not sure that it's even getting to average. So David Johnson is a guy that shot up a lot of draft boards because, you know, folks got excited about this offense. And, and I love the player. But think about this. You guys tell me. And historically, whenever we've had a rookie coach, a rookie quarterback added to a team that last year was one of the absolute worst in the league in every way possible, there's not one positive. There's not one thing to start with to build from. There's not an offensive line. There's not... We don't know what we have with receivers. We've got Larry Fitzgerald, who's a, who's a Hall of Famer, but he's old. He's being asked to do different things. We've got Christian Kirk, who's a second-year guy. And yeah, do second-year guys break out? Yeah, sometimes they do. But can he, whenever he's being asked to carry the whole load? And then outside of that, who else is there? They're rotating all of these guys in the preseason to see what they have. And Demir Bird did a little bit this last week. You know, Keyshawn Johnson is showing some things, but... To me, that's a very shaky receiving core to be wanting to run four wides and three wide receivers all of the time. So when I pair all that together and I look back historically, I think, man, if we were to add things this up typically and it wasn't Cliff Kingsbury, we would just say avoid. Don't touch this situation. Yet people are gravitating to it. I mean, what are y'all's thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a lot of talk in the spring about how Kingsbury's system would sort of mask this offensive line. And I I think you're saying that that's probably not going to be the case, it looks like. Yeah, I just don't think so. I I still think David Johnson will have value. I do believe he's one player that they are not revealing what all they're going to do with him in the preseason. They've literally involved in in the passing game almost zero. And we know he's going to be involved because he's too good of a player given the other guys that are shaky. But what I'll say is, Man, to take David Johnson, say pick six, pick seven, you know, is about where you still have to take him right now. I don't see an upside where I don't see how he scores 10 touchdowns, to be honest, because touchdown production on teams that are losing teams. So if you win six games or less, you know, there's a 40% drop off from the teams that win 12 or 11 games or more in touchdown production for running backs. Why? Because you're down all of the time. So even when you're down in the red zone or near the goal line, when you would normally run, You're trying to preserve clock and you're still throwing more. And so it's just an issue for running backs whenever you're going to play on a losing team. And and Vegas, I believe, still has this team at six wins. I don't know if they've moved the line, but that's really low. That's one of the lowest projections of all the teams in the league. I would say it's in the bottom three. So Vegas doesn't see it, and I don't see it coming together in this preseason. So for me, most of the Cardinals at ADP are all avoids. 
Yeah, we were, we actually talked about it on last week's show. I've I've gotten a lot more hesitant with David Johnson in the first round. It's tough to see a whole lot of difference in upside or even in, in floor maybe between him and Joe Mixon and Dalvin Cook, who's going early in round two. James Conner. I mean, I, I was honestly thinking to myself last night, and, and I didn't, you know, ask you and Kevin about this map. But, you know, at this point, I might be taking James Conner over David Johnson. I mean, it looks like James Conner is going to play – pretty much the similar role as he did last season. It's obviously a much better offense and a much better offensive line. Sounds like David Johnson might be moving down the draft sharks board today. (laughs) He's definitely moved down mine. Uh, He's a guy, it's funny. uh, You guys probably go through this all the time, but you start, I I start my projection season in May, right? I'm I'm looking at the roster construction, coaching history. Those are all things that I'm taking into account. And my first pass on David Johnson was really low. And I remember Sigmund Bloom from Football Guys coming to me and being and just really challenging me to think about it. And then Evan Silva, you know, had said some things. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be open-minded here. Maybe Kingsbury can do some things. And so I moved him up. And I drafted him in multiple drafts, including, you know, some mid and high stakes stuff. And I'll be honest, I regret it all. I, I've moved him back down and I'm I'm with you guys actually. I think that was you, Jared, that said it, but I'm on I think James I will take James Connor all day and all night right now mm-hmm. over David Johnson. His offensive line is twenty times better. You know, if folks are on my Twitter feed, you can easily or if you're not, just go give me a, a follower, at least just go check it out. You'll see some I've actually posted some of the the plays that James Connor got to see this last week. And I've seen it multiple weeks in a row now. Their offensive line is elite. I mean, mm-hmm. they just wall off a whole side of the field. It's not even about James Conner versus David Johnson, right, as running backs. This, the situation is so much better. I don't see any way to, to pass on Conner. And to your point, Jared, he's on the field all the time. And people forget, like this guy was on pace for, I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say he was on pace last year before the ankle injury for like 60, 70 catches. He's not shabby in the reception area. And Jalen Samuels is not seeing the field very often with the starters. I mean, Connor is so far, I believe, seen 95 plus percent of the snaps with the starters when the starters are in in the preseason. And that matches what Mike you know, Tomlin does. I mean, Mike Tomlin, if you look at his history, he's not really a two, three back guy. He likes having one guy that can do everything. And that goes a long way back. Yeah, and it seems like the only reason Connor came out of that third preseason game was that he, he took a big shot to the back and seemed a little banged up. He came out for a couple plays and was right back in there. So, yeah, it, it looks to me that Connor is going to be a workhorse in an elite offense, which is what we want. So what do we think about Kyler Murray, though, in this Cardinals offense? Because it's easy to say if the offense is struggling, the running back's not going to score. I think kind of the argument in Kyler Murray's favor all along has been, well, even if the O-line's bad, maybe that pushes him to run the ball a bit more, and that's really where he adds value over other quarterbacks. And his ADP has come down through the disappointing preseason for the Cardinals overall. So are you off of Kyler Murray? I I mean, I haven't really jumped back on board, even with him falling down from like 7 to about QB 10 at last check. But where, where are you at on Kyler Murray? Yeah, I just don't see a reason to take him, you know, in the top 12, to be honest. You know, if I can get if I can get him late, I think I own him maybe three times total. And I've drafted over 40 teams now, about half of those, a little over half of those are best ball. And I believe if I'm thinking correctly, I only own him once outside of best ball. I may own him five times, but um, no, I'm just not I'm not super excited about him. Yes, rookie quarterbacks can add a lot of value with their legs. And so I do see that as being something that it's a big positive for him. But if he can't supplement that with some kind of passing game with some type of consistency, it's still going to be a roller coaster because a lot of guys that run whenever you hear, oh, that's added consistency. Well, it's because, you know, they're still throwing for 200 yards and at least two touchdowns a week. And then they add on 50 on the ground and maybe every other or every third game you get a rushing touchdown. That's enough that, you know, that's kind of like a Dak Prescott can do that kind of thing. But for me with Kyler Murray, I, I believe there's going to be a lot of weeks where he throws zero touchdowns, you know, and it may be three picks. So I just see some disaster games coming, you know, for mm-hmm. Kyler. So it's going to be a matter of if you roster him, I think you're going to have to be really picky about when you get him in your lineup. And as good as we all may think we are at this thing, mm-hmm. when it comes to week to week, you guys know how that goes. Sometimes I hate my rosters because I have too many decisions. I'm just like, good God, I wish my roster was worse. So I didn't even have to pick because I'm just going to make the wrong decision, despite how much we may study this stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. So Kyler Murray, preseason loser. Why don't you give us a few of your winners from the preseason? 
Sure. Yeah, we hit on one already with James Conner, so I'll just move on, you know, and he's more of a high round guy. But some guys that folks may not really be thinking about, and and I think folks were early on, but now it's something that's kind of been, you know, the new headlines come through. You guys know how the news cycles work, right? It's like, what's the latest thing that everybody wants to get excited about? So Marquis Valdez-Scantling, you know, we haven't seen much of the Packers starters. We haven't seen Aaron Rodgers. So things have really settled and his ADP, you know, is slow. It, it had climbed all the way up into like the seventh round. And now, you know, last night I was in a draft where I got him in the ninth round. The key that people need to know about him is we've got Matt LaFleur, who's now the new head coach. He's running the offense. You know, even though Nathaniel Hackett is there, this is going to be his offense. And he really, people talk about him coming from Sean McVay. He spent very little time with McVay. Most of his time was with Kyle Shanahan. What does Kyle Shanahan do? Kyle Shanahan loves to run 21, which is, you know, two two running backs, usually a fullback and a tight end. And he loves to run 12 personnel, which is two tight ends and one running back. So two receivers. So we're going to see a lot of that. And Marquise Valdez-Scantling is the guy that's staying on the field in those sets. The other important thing to remember is in a 21 set, they're typically using Mercedes Lewis. That's basically a nobody in the passing game. So when they're in 21, it's basically going to be Devontae Adams and Marquise Valdez-Scantling and Aaron Jones. Those are going to be his three primary targets every single play if he passes. Now, typically, in tw- a lot more often, you're going to run out of 21. You know, probably 70% of the time, they're going to be under center. Or they're going to be running. But in that extra 30% that you get that are going to be passes, Valdez-Scantling, at a minimum, in my opinion, is going to be the second read on all of those. And so when you think about, you know, if, let's say they got a thousand plays, 500 are going to be passes and you start doing the math on that. Those little things start to add up. So the other thing is Valdez-Scantling has done everything right in camp. You know, he hasn't had a ton of exposure in the preseason because there hasn't been a starting quarterback in the game. But when you go watch it, he is staying on the field in all of those sets. Now, when the Packers go to the 12 personnel, they're putting Robert Tanyan and then they're bringing on Jimmy Graham. And so Graham, I think, is still going to have some value late in drafts, you know, as well. But I think he'll only be on the field for like 70 percent of the time. But I think the bigger key for me is I love Marquise Valdez-Scantling. Geronimo Allison, on the other hand, you know, you have to look at there are going to be certain games where they're just not going to be in 11 personnel all the time. I think the first assumption was, oh, this is McVay's offense. It's going to be 90 percent and 11 personnel. And Geronimo Allison's going to be Cooper Cup because that was one of the potential outcomes I even had in my mind. But once I started watching the preseason, the question I wanted to answer, you guys, hey, ask me what matters. Like going into that situation, what I wanted to see, I wanted to see was LaFleur going to stick more to his Shanahan roots based on his roster construction, or was he going to lean more to the McVay side? And in a perfect world, what it looks like right now is he's going to lean much more to the way he was under Shanahan, which is the same thing he did last year in Tennessee, despite Delaney Walker getting hurt in the very first game. He stayed in 12 personnel, like 30 31, 30% of the time, which was one of the highest in the league. He was an 11 personnel under the league average. You know, he was below the 65% mark. So he's a guy that historically has not ran a lot of 11. And now it looks like he's not going to run a lot of that again. So that moves Geronimo Allison down and that moves Marquise Valdez-Scantling up and should definitely be a guy that folks are targeting, you know, in round nine, eight, 10 of their draft easily could be shot out of a cannon come week one. And people are going to be thinking, whoa, where did this come from? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, glad that uh, MVS didn't pop a big play this preseason because that would have, uh, you know, hurt, hurt the ADP. Um, but he didn't. So yeah, he, he's been one of my favorite targets. And you know, Geronimo Allison, who I, I still see Allison go ahead of MVS in some drafts. And you know, I, I'm with you, Dwayne. I think MVS is definitely the guy we want here. I will gladly take Marquez Valdez Scantling over either of the Steelers wideouts that we have been debating around the same point in drafts. You talked a little bit about James Washington, so why don't you give us? Uh, your full view on what James Washington has shown us this preseason and what we should expect from him and Dante Moncrief. James Washington, I actually did a poll on Twitter about this because, I mean, he's just really one of the most confounding players because everything that I wanted to see from him, minus one thing, which I'll talk about in a minute, but like the the running the dig routes, the the crossing routes, the posts, not just running you know routes that are basically designed to either you've got single coverage and they give you a shot or you're just running coverage off. That's a lot of what he did last year, right? With Juju Smith-Schuster and Antonio Brown on the field. He is much more integral to the offense when he's on the field by route designs. And he's 
showing up big when the ball is in the air, like he's playing with supreme confidence. I mean, there's not a ball. I haven't seen him drop a ball all preseason. I've seen him make multiple tough catches. I've seen him burn man coverage. I've seen him burn zone coverage. I've seen him catch balls with multiple defenders around him and still have the, the ability to not only snag the ball in tight coverage, but then, you know, catch it and quickly transition to making a move past the next player and almost turning into a running back. And that's, what's so exciting about him. Here's the problem. One when he sees press coverage, he's really struggling. And so what I noticed, even with Mason Rudolph last game, after he made a big play out of the gate and caught that 41-yard touchdown pass from Mason Rudolph, you know, later in the game, you know, he was getting covered. And I was seeing that it was Rudolph's first read. But I, you, you can tell that Rudolph is being coached that as soon as someone gets their hands on James Washington, just go to the next read. You know, and that's the case for a lot of receivers. You know, But when you watch Deontay Johnson the week before when they both played, and they were both in for much of the second half. And the Chiefs, they were trying to see what their you know second group of DBs could do, and they were asking them to play press coverage almost that whole half. So you got to see a ton of it. And Deontay Johnson was much better releasing off the line than James Washington. So I think right now what's going on is James Washington, is his application on the field is kind of limited. If the defense lines up and off coverage or you know off man, off zone, any one of those things – James Washington can be a very viable target. In fact, he, he may be one of your best targets on the team. But if if you've got to deal with, you don't know what the defense is coming out in, and now all of a sudden they're in man or they're impressed or they know this and they're trying to take this away from James Washington, I think it limits how often he can be on the field. Because if I'm the offensive coordinator, I want to put the guys on the field that I know can play in any situation, even though he may be really good in these certain situations. And so the other thing that's really troubling to me is, Deontay Johnson is the guy battling with Dante Moncrief. And I'm assuming that, you know, the debate you guys have been having has been really around Moncrief and Washington. And I see Moncrief as the weak link in this passing unit. If there's a path to getting on the field and taking over for someone, it's probably Moncrief. And right now, Deontay Johnson has been the one coming in the game and taking Moncrief's spot throughout the preseason. Um, Even last week, whenever uh, Deontay Johnson didn't play, we didn't see James Washington get those uh, opportunities from the X receiver position. Instead, James Washington is playing the flanker or Z position, which guess whose role that is? Juju. Juju, exactly. So is there a worse place to be in the Steelers offense than stuck behind their best player? (laughs) That's my opinion, right? Now, now here's my thought on Washington, and I want to get y'all's. He's still a viable person to draft. Just don't reach for him. Don't, because I saw this last weekend. I saw some uh, FFPC main events posted online. I saw some seventh and eighth round picks spent on James Washington. You just have to know what you're getting. You're going to need to be patient. You're going to need to hope. Like there is a potential scenario, right? Where I guess they could come out and all of a sudden line Juju up in the slot, line Moncrief up in the X, and then just give James Washington the Z roll. I don't see that happening. I think that will happen on certain plays, you know, but that that's a potential outcome. So you could get lucky and that could happen. I think more likely what you're going to see is James Washington going to play maybe 30% of the snaps each week. And if it's a game where they're losing or trailing and they know all of a sudden they're going to see more off coverage, they're going to see more, you know, three deep looks where they know he can be successful, you're going to see him get on the field more, and they're also going to need the big plays from him because they'll be in comeback mode. So in those weeks, I think you're going to get some some nice production from him. But I like still rostering him on the chance that they figure out how to get him into the lineup. I just say don't reach for him. If you take him in the 10th, 11th round, and you're thinking, let's say your receivers are mostly floor guys because you know the way you built your roster, then I like adding James Washington in round 10 or 11 as – Similar to what we would think about a Darwin Thompson or, uh, you know, a Justice Hill and Alexander Madison at runner, right? It's a guy that could give us upside if things break right, but you need to be in a deeper league where you're okay holding on to the guy for a bit. Yeah, Washington to me is the old talent versus opportunity debate because I, I do think he's the second best wide receiver on the Steelers. So do you do we do we bet on that and you know bet on Washington eventually getting himself on the field or do or do we bet on the guy we know who's going to be on the field early on the season at least and that's that's Dante Moncrief and. I think we've all bet on Dante Moncrief a lot of times, and it usually doesn't work out too well. And when you talk about round seven, round eight of a contest like FFPC, that, that to me, that's not where you want to be patient with a guy. You don't want to take somebody that you don't know what the early season is going to look like. It's going to reveal itself a month in. 
And I mean, it's it's like a race to re- week 12. We have to make the overall playoffs there. So I, I think, like you said, if you get him in round 10, round 11, James Washington makes sense. He hasn't really been consistently making it to that range, though. So I haven't been on Washington. And frankly, I don't like Dante Moncrief. I, I agree that he's the path to get to the lineup. And I think... If James Washington's not your guy, I don't think necessarily Dante Moncrief has to be your guy because if we do get the, the, the one path that we can kind of draw for James Washington to emerge is that we get a little bit into the season. The Steelers are like, listen, we keep giving Dante Moncrief opportunities. He's not that good. We got to get James Washington on the field. Let's try him there. I don't know how realistic that is, but to me, neither one of those guys is somebody I want to bet on right now. Yeah, I agree. And maybe that maybe the sneaky thing here to do is if you're in a really deep league, just take Deontay Johnson at the very end of your draft. <laughs> you know, maybe that's the best way to go about it. Mm-hmm. All right. So who else is on the winner's list? Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about a tight end. Um, Kyle Rudolph is a guy, you know, there are a lot of different winners. I'm trying to mostly hit on some, you know, that are a little bit below the radar right now. So Kyle Rudolph is a big winner to me. You've got Gary Kubiak, who's now the assistant head coach this is really his offense. You know, I know Stefanski in name is the offensive coordinator, but if you go watch this, it's Gary Kubiak's offense. This is a Mike Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan, that this is this is what they're running. A lot of ele- a lot of 12 personnel, a lot of 21 personnel. Obviously a lot of folks saw Dalvin Cook in the huge run last week on the outside zone play where he had the nice cutback and then accelerated through everybody. So this is a great thing for Dalvin Cook, but it's also a, a, a really good thing for Cal Rudolph and here's why. In this particular offense, with them not running so many slot variations, you know, where Adam Thielen is going to work inside, we know that Kyle Rudolph is going to be the guy working inside the numbers quite often. The quarterback is Kirk Cousins. Where does Kirk Cousins love to throw the ball? Jamison Crowder, Jordan Reed, Adam Thielen last year in the slot. He loves throwing the ball down the numbers or down the hashes. That's his favorite part of the field. So Kyle Rudolph is going to be working a, in an area that his quarterback likes, B, in an uncontested area where there's not as many other good receivers operating, and C, it's also an offense that is very good for tight ends because every play is set up to look the same. So all of the run play fakes to the running backs, quite often the person that gets the best mismatch out of that is the tight end. And watching you know Kyle Rudolph this preseason, you know he's only been targeted a few times, but he's out there pretty much every play. Um, yes, Irv Smith is working in, but he's not supplanting Kyle Rudolph. He's only coming in to supplement him when they go to the two tight end looks. And so I think we're going to see a lot less of the slot receiver this year. And I think that, you know, when you add all of these different things up, you know, I see Kyle Rudolph as a guy that's really got an opportunity to catch, you know, even, even with Diggs and Thielen doing their thing, I don't see it as having to take away from them. This is an offense that typically runs really through two or three people. If you, if you look at it over the history, it doesn't always mean the same three positions, but typically there are three, you know, main guys. I expect Dalvin Cook to be involved in the passing game. But I think Kyle Rudolph easily could be in the 15, 18% target range. And, you know, he could be good for anywhere from 60 catches to it wouldn't surprise me. I think his upside is he hits 75 catches, you know, 750 yards, five, six touchdowns, which it tight in, you know, that's going to be a top 12 guy, you know, and if you're waiting in your draft and let's say you get snapped off on the last other thing you were waiting on, which was maybe Vance McDonald and somebody took him around early versus reaching around, you know, on someone else, you know, or trying to push it with like a Mark Andrews, we can come back to him in a minute. I just prefer waiting and taking Kyle Rudolph. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, in addition to the the offense, there was already room for positive regression in the red zone for Kyle Rudolph. He had he had basically career lows in terms of um, touchdown rate inside the red zone, inside the ten yard line last season versus uh, before. Twenty eight point six percent of last year's catches inside the ten uh, were touchdowns. Fifty three point nine percent inside the ten before that. So I like all of, all of the details on the new offense. I also think that he was bound for some positive movement, and he's already been a perennial top twelve fantasy tight end for us anyway. I think Kyle Rudolph started draft season uh, way too low on the board. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think, you know, the one other thing, you know, with Rudolph, this arguably will be the best offense he's ever played in based on what he does really well, which is, you know, he's a guy that gets out and he's a good blocker, but he's also, you know, a good receiver. So now you put him in an offense where literally that's an unknown to the defense more often, you know, than not. And even if they do know, it's always has to be 
you know, in the back of their mind that this could be a run play because this running game is so good. And so I just, I think it's a perfect match for him. You know, one other guy, you know, I, I guess we can hit on one more guy that's moved up. I don't know. What do you guys want to do? Yeah. Hit us. Hit us. Yeah. Let's just name a quarterback. I think, um, you know, Jared, you may have already even hit this one on Twitter. I can't remember if you were one of the folks, but at quarterback, you know, just wait this year. <laughs> and here's another reason why is Sam Darnold, you know, Sam Darnold, has looked really good this preseason. Again, this is an offense that's being installed. So we've got a new offense. It's going to be, you know, basically they're going to be running, you know, what was, um, you know, a New England type offense. And so you're going to see a ton of 11 personnel. They match that up with what was done from a standpoint of personnel. So you've got Quincy Anunua, who they already had, but they added Jamison Crowder. And then you've got Robbie Anderson, You've got Chris Herndon, who's going to be out for a bit, but then you add Le'Veon Bell. So the nice thing with Sam Darnold is at all times, there's going to be a viable three to four pass catching targets on the field that the defense has to account for. And that's really a tough thing for a defense to handle, especially if Darnold continues to grow. And I think what we've seen this preseason is he's doing a really good job of just distributing the ball. You know, now he's playing vanilla defenses and I get all of that. But what I like that I'm seeing is he's not forcing it to any one of these guys because they're all good. You know, one game it was Quincy Anunua, I believe, that had the most targets. The first game it was Jamison Crowder, who had a nice catch and run for 30 yards. Then he caught a touchdown in the red zone. Uh, Last week we saw Robbie Anderson get more involved. You know, so it's also a nice complement of players. Robbie Anderson's always a threat to take the top off of the defense. Crowder's working down the seams, you know, underneath. Herndon can do a similar type of thing. And then Anun was, you know, kind of your gritty player from the outside that's going to work that intermediate range on a lot of the digs and crossers and things like that. You know, has good run after the catch ability. And then we all know how good Le'Veon Bell can be, you know, out of the backfield. So Sam Darnold is a guy that if you wait super late at quarterback or you know that, you know, you want to hold that you want to own two quarterbacks in your league, Sam Darnold's a great target. Yeah. He's uh, shot up my rankings over the last month here. I agree. I think he's looked really comfortable, especially considering it's a new offense with all these new weapons. Let's remember too. I mean, you know, the the guy was the youngest quarterback in NFL history last year. And, you know, he obviously had an up and down rookie season, but he, he closed strong, you know, those final four games, he looked solid and he's looked good this preseason. So the one thing I'd say about Darnold, he does open, with a game against the Bills. So, you know, if you're if you're planning on streaming all year, I don't think he's a good week one option, but I do think he's going to be a viable spot starter at times this season. Yeah, with a quiet, good set of pass catchers, too, that you've mentioned all the names. But I, I think if you if you take a minute and kind of look at the players, you're like, well, I didn't realize the Jets were that good at receiver and tight end and, and running back now. Yeah, honestly, I've thought about it, guys, here, you know, not to get off topic too far, but I've kind of stepped back and thought, man, am I – maybe I should own just a little bit of Le'Veon Bell <laughs> because I've basically steered clear. And if, if we think about what they've done, even in this preseason, as far as upgrading their offensive line, and then there's all these players around and mm-hmm. yeah, Bell's a little older, but he's definitely not in the range where, Oh my gosh, we have to avoid this guy, you know, and you just got to rest for a season. I literally own zero Le'Veon Bell. And I am starting to wonder, you know, when he falls back around to me in those drafts, because sometimes you've probably seen this too. He'll just fall back to you at like, you know, round two, pick four. Yeah. Because you'll just land in that draft where no one else likes Le'Veon Bell either. And before this, I was of the opinion, you know, just don't, I'm not here to catch falling knives. I'm just going to continue to avoid. But I have been softening on that just because the rest of the offense, to your point. And I think once you get into that range, he's fine. Because when you get there, the running backs are basically all guys that you could consider in round one, but they got there for one reason or another. It's when you're talking about pick seven, pick eight, Mm -hmm. and you're taking Le'Veon Bell over Julio Jones or some other top shelf, safer receiving option. That's where I don't like him particularly. Dwayne, have you noticed the Jets playing faster this preseason than you know what we saw out of out of Adam Gase in Miami because that was one of my biggest concerns with this offense and Bell specifically is Gase was just he ran such a slow offense in Miami yeah Adam Gase one of the slowest offenses in the NFL in his time in Miami now if you go back to when he had Peyton Manning right in Denver he ran much more of an up-tempo offense had a lot more plays so I think that's a great question and I did I have watched it and I have noticed it what I haven't been able to figure out though for sure is if it's something, you know, how often will they do it? Because sometimes when you see it in preseason, so for example, the first preseason game, they just came out and you'll see this a lot. If they decide to play starters in the preseason game, one of the things I've noticed, I remember the Packers used to do do this with Mike McCarthy. And then we'd get to the season. We'd be like, wow, this is a, this, this is the same old slow Mike McCarthy offense. 
if they're only going to put them out there for a little bit, they'll just run their two minute offense. That may be the thing quote unquote, right. That they're looking to do this game. And so in that first game, they definitely did that with Darnold. It was, let's just go run our two minute offense. And then we're going to get him off the field. We're going to get all the starters out of here. And that's what they did. Now, the second game, he played longer and they did use some of it. They didn't use it the whole time. And I'm trying to remember what I, I can't honestly remember what I saw on it on the third game. I'll have to go back and check my notes and maybe tweet about it later. But right now where my head is at, I definitely see it as being enough that it's not going to be, you know, down in the like 925 attempt range where it's the worst in the league. I see, I see the Jets being, you know, more up in the 950, 975 attempts, which is more really approaching the league average. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, who the quarterback is and how well they can protect them and, you know, the talent around them. And I think what we're seeing with Adam Gase, one thing I'll say about Adam Gase guys is because I study coaches a ton. That's one of my big things that I do. And I've created a database around coaches that goes back seven to 10 years, depending on, you know, how much data I can find on some of them in college and stuff. But for everything they've done in the pros I have, and what I've seen with Adam Gase is he's one of these guys that for all the heat he takes, he totally adapts what he's doing to his players. Like you won't, he's not a guy like Arians where I can look at it and go, wow, he does this with these three players and this is his scheme. Not that that's bad. That can be good too, as long as you have the right guys and you know how to get the guys. But with Gase, what I've noticed is he doesn't hold to any of those things. He'll distribute the ball and change it up based on who his best players are, you know, or based on who the talent is that he has. So I think that we're very likely to see him shed the idea of him, you know, really just being this overly conservative, slow play caller. I wouldn't be surprised if we see that go away. Yeah. I mean, with the lack of talent he had in Miami, it, it probably made sense to, to slow games down. And, you know, try, try to... <laughs> yeah, he was, he was hoping they wouldn't even have to come out of the tunnel, but he couldn't <laughs> right. slow it down that much. <laughs> and the great thing with Sam Darnold and where Jamison Crowder is going, Quincy Nunwe, Chris Herndon is that you can draft them you can not need to start them right away while we're all figuring out what the Jets are actually going to look like in this first Adam Gase season. And then you can decide whether they're actually going to be an yeah. asset or not. Whereas Le'Veon Bell, you're betting that you have to start him right away. Maybe the Jets are the sneaky team stack to win these, you know, these big best ball tournaments. Oh, that's totally been my strategy in best ball. <laughs> I mean, I've been drafting Darnold for about the last month nice. and then just taking whichever, you know, because they're kind of, ebb, it's an ebb and flow. I own Robbie Anderson a little bit, but it's mostly Jared, the two that you talked about at the end, you know, with Anunwa and Crowder. Now Crowder jumped up because he scored that touchdown. So like he's jumped up like three or four rounds, but Anunwa, you can still get basically for free. Mm-hmm. All right. So why don't we switch now to the loser side and start tearing some people down? Who are your, your big losers coming out of the preseason? Yeah, I think one is Daryl Henderson. You know, um, I wrote an article for Matt Waldman, you know, at the RSP, um, really about the range of outcomes for Daryl Henderson right when the preseason was beginning. And, you know, at the top level, I saw a guy that could give Gurley, you know, he could be the guy taking that extra 10% off of Todd Gurley's plate running, probably, you know, take 5% off of Todd Gurley's, you know, plate as a pass receiver, plus carve out his own role other than that. And so I saw him as being a guy that could potentially get 30% of the carries in this offense, maybe 10 to 15%, you know, of the targets. 15 would have been stretching it because they run, they have three really good receivers that they have to get the ball to. But I thought, you know, he has legitimate, he could, it wouldn't surprise me if he got to 10 to 12% of the targets and 30% of the rushes. And in an offense like this, that could make him worth, you know, a fifth, sixth, seventh round pick, you know, in your fantasy draft, because additionally, he could be the handcuff to Gurley too. So you had all these different paths and the ceiling ceiling for him was if for some reason they had to shut Gurley down for some part of the season, or if Gurley, you know, just had to be shut down period, there was, you know, league winning upside. And my view on that has just changed. And it's because just watching Daryl Henderson, this preseason run behind zone concepts, he's really, really struggled. And so if, if you look at even just this, this last weekend, um, you know, I just, I just put out a tweet about this earlier. Um, and this has been the trend through the whole preseason. Literally, I mean, he's gaining one or two yards per carry on zone running plays, inside zone and outside zone. When they run power, right? So that's like a counter, a trap, a toss, where basically you've got some lineman or a fullback, you know, isolation would count to where they're pulling and he's following them to the hole and there's not a lot of decisions to be made. All he has to do is pick where he's going, accelerate. And then like his traits just come alive, like his contact balance. You know, once he gets to the second level of the defense, he's got really good, uh, you know, vision. 
Where he struggles, though, is behind the line whenever literally there's an A, B, or C option every play. He just seems confused. And his feet and his mind, they're just not in sync. And by the time he makes his decision, there's already there's there's somebody that's beat a block and they're on him. And so I, at this point, I have to lean towards the lower end of what whenever I put that article out, you know, um, you know, of the spectrum of potential outcomes. Honestly, he's almost he's just about to the floor <laughs> of what I projected because this offense ran zone on over 95 percent of their plays last year. So if he can't be effective in zone and that's what they do and that's how they set up their passing plays is off of that action. Because mm-hmm. some people will just say, well, just run power when he's in. Well, that sounds that sounds simple enough. But when your offensive play action fakes are all built off of the outside zone to then let Jared Goff boot out of the backside, right, and find that crosser to Cooper Cup, it's it's a lot more problematic than people really think. You know, it's it's a bigger redesign. Yeah, you can give him some looks out of power. And even if the defense knows it's coming, you can execute on those. And, you know, Daryl Henderson is probably going to be really good still. But they can't redesign their whole offense. So what that tells me is, Henderson, you've just got to move him down. I think at this point, his ADP is starting. It's it's reflecting that it's fallen quite a bit. So I like him still. If you get him in, you know, the tenth round, I may even take a swing on him in the ninth round. But the days of targeting him in the sixth or seventh round, you know, I'm out on those. And in fact, I think the better play is just to take Malcolm Brown at the end of your draft because if Todd Gurley goes down, he's going to be the guy, not Daryl Henderson. Yeah, I just wish that more people were still on drafting Daryl Henderson in the <laughs> fifth and sixth round because it was beautiful when that was happening in those best ball drafts. Now he's at the eight nine turn on Draft.com. Yeah. So another guy, um, Mark Andrews. So we've talked about a runner in Henderson. We already talked about James Washington a little earlier, but Mark Andrews. Mark Andrews is a guy that, man, so much talent, but it goes back to what you guys were mentioning earlier. It's the talent versus the opportunity thing. And if you look at Greg Roman's offense, uh, you know, originally I had looked at what they had done last year from the time Lamar Jackson came in. Obviously, great chemistry with Mark Andrews, but I was still concerned coming in because what I had noted is three or four tight ends were roting rotating through the game, no matter what, including Mark Andrews. One thing that I like to look at, um, a stat that I think is very telling, um, whenever, instead of looking at snaps, what I want to know for receivers are the number of routes they're running per drop back. What that tells me is, so when the team does want to pass, which is really all I care about <laughs> for a receiver, how often was the guy on the field? And so Mark Andrews, I believe this year is going to be a guy that's going to struggle to even hit the 50% mark. Whenever the Ravens are passing, I don't expect him to be on the field over 50%. And here's why. He's not playing out of 12 personnel in first and second down whenever the down and distance is manageable. He's hardly playing on first down. Every once in a while on first down and 10, we will see him in the game. But I don't think they trust him as a blocker. And they always want the run to be a threat. The positive when I looked at the offseason was Greg Roman had made this work in the past with a guy like Vernon Davis, who does a lot of the same things as Mark Andrews. He works down the seams. He's great off the play action. You can hit him for big plays. But Vernon Davis back in those days, even though Delaney Walker was getting his and getting on the field as well, he was still seeing at least 70% of the snaps. And he was on the field for like over 80% of passing downs. And so we're just not seeing that with Mark Andrews. They're getting Hayden Hurst out there. They're putting Boyle out there. And this isn't just, this isn't with scrubs. This is with the starters. And it also matches what we saw last year. So I just feel the trend is too strong for folks that are still, uh, you know, Mark Andrews probably is going, I don't, I don't know. I haven't drafted near as many teams this week, um, you know, or the last week and a half basically because I've been doing all this analysis. But before that I was drafting pretty much like every day or every other day. And it was to the point where, man, it was like, if you really want him, you got to have him in the ninth. There's no way I would do that now. I probably won't even take him in the 10th. I would be happy with him in the 11th and then pair him with a Kyle Rudolph. That way I've got an upside play because I do believe if Boyle or if Hayden Hurst were to get hurt, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, we can be wrong, but then we can be right. <laughs> you know, you can do those things so many times, like when you're making projections, oh, you look like a genius. And then the next week somebody gets hurt. And now all of a sudden the guy that everybody thought was good that you thought wouldn't be good is now all of a sudden awesome, but it's not, you know, for the same reasons that you said he wouldn't be good. That's what's going to happen with Mark Andrews. If one of those other tight ends go down and now all of a sudden he's getting to see more first and second down work and he's not just out there for, for sure pass down, you know, situations. And let's say he could get up to 70% of the snaps that he's playing with Lamar Jackson passing. Then all of a sudden I think he has a lot of value. 
But right now, it's just not going to happen. You know, he's only going to see a third of the snaps altogether and about half of the snaps as a pass receiver. I agree. And pass on pass on Mark Andrews. Draft Kyle Rudolph instead. And I, I know Rudolph's still going behind Andrews in ADP. Yeah, Andrews is still sitting at tight end eleven, I believe, on draft in the late round nine or early round ten, something like that. So I, I have been zero Andrews. Yeah, and I don't. For me, I, I'm with you guys. I'm not a complete avoid if if the right price tag gets there, even taking him ahead of Kyle Rudolph, if I know that's what I have to do to get both. But it's got to be a specific draft where I feel like doing that because, man, in the rounds you have to take those guys, that's where Justice Hill, Alexander Madison, you know, these running backs with huge upside that you know are sitting there, that's where they go. And so to take that strategy, you almost have to sacrifice, you know, something else that may be very near and dear to your heart. So, yeah, I'm I'm with you guys. I think there's a way to make it work. It would have been better before because Kyle Rudolph has started slowly climbing. I think some of it's the Jordan Reed injury and some other things. People seem to be taking the foot off the gas a little bit on Jimmy Graham. And so that's immediately just kind of sliding Rudolph up a little bit. So. I totally get what you guys are saying. There, there would have been a time where I thought it was a better strategy, but yeah, right now I think it's tough to do. Can we get your thoughts on Justice Hill before you go? Because he's a guy that I'm intrigued by. He just always seems to go earlier than I'm willing to take him because as good as he's looked this preseason, he really hasn't gotten many, if any, first-team snaps. When I look at Justice Hill, um, he is a guy that in the preseason we haven't seen a lot, but it doesn't bother me because I see this kind of thing every year with runners, right? We even saw it with Darwin Thompson in the beginning. He was just kind of sitting back behind everybody, and now slowly they've moved him up. I think what's going to happen is we're going to see Kenneth Dixon release. Now, if Dixon for some reason isn't released, obviously that's a huge problem, you know, or if Gus Edwards is, isn't released, you know, one of the two would have to be gone. But the way I look at, you know, Hill is a guy that I just, I like owning pieces of this rushing offense and he's the cheapest piece. And I see him as being the back that's the most different from Mark Ingram. Kenneth Dixon is probably the next most different. Gus Edwards is basically like very similar. And so if, if I want to be multiple, like the Ravens, that means I want three different kinds of runners. And I think there's a path that we're not thinking about here that it literally could be Mark Ingram is the one and Justice Hill, the next guy that's the most different, is really the two because he's going to be better as a pass receiver than Gus Edwards. And if you give him those huge holes that they create off of this read option stuff, like what we saw last year for Gus Edwards, you give Justice Hill a, a hole that size, it's a touchdown. It's not a 15-yard carry. It's 70 to the house. So that's why I like Justice Hill. I'm betting on his upside. Now, I'm with you. I don't want to reach for him. Usually the sweet spot for me on him is around 11 or around 12. Um, I like to come away with him or Alexander Madison, one of those two every draft. Darwin Thompson used to be in that group. Now Darwin Thompson, like last night in my draft, was a seventh rounder. So like he's his ADP is just skyrocketed. So that's where I'm at on Justice Hill, but I don't plan on needing to use him. It's a total roster construction kind of thing, right? It's 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 purely a stash play. Mm-hmm. All right. So before we let you go, are there any other losers that you wanted to highlight? No, I think we hit most of them. You know, the, the one thing I would say, you know, for folks listening, and if you're going to be doing a draft, the other thing you want to do with this is it's great to hear about all these players, but what you really have to do is synthesize it all. And I know that's what you guys will walk you guys do a good job of walking your audience through is think what these tiers look like now versus when we started drafting three. Well, I I'm a degenerate. So I started drafting like, you know, three months ago, but (laughs) most people have been drafting the last couple of weeks, but think how much the landscape has changed. It used to be really hairy in the middle rounds at running back. And we loved all the wide receivers. It's almost shifted. Now it's like, oh, I like Austin Eckler. I can see a path to value. Oh, I like Tevin Coleman. Oh, I like, uh, you know, the upside that Matt Breida gives gives me later. You know, a lot more options. I like Chris Carson. Rashad Penny's really not a threat. There's so many more runners. Even Sony Michelle, now that he's been on the field, he's at least played. There are so many runners now between rounds four through six that had so many more question marks before these last two weeks. And then for receivers. All these guys we loved that we felt so good about, like Dante Pettis and Christian Kirk, and ever we it was ha- it was glass half full, right, on all of mm-hmm. them. Now many of those have moved down. So my only other thing I would say before you know leaving is for folks to now take that and all into context, and now think about your draft plans, especially if you're someone that has drafted multiple drafts. Set back and kind of reevaluate the strategy. 
something I'm liking doing more now than whenever the season first started as I love if I'm down, you know, between round between picks nine and 12, man, I love starting like Odell Beckham Jr. And Tyreek Hill, because I feel so much better about being able to piece together my running backs in those three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 rounds. And I don't have to take them all the time. And I can still leave a sweet spot like in rounds eight through 10 where I can still hit the upside receivers that I like that haven't risen up the boards as much as I think they should. Or even you could add round seven, you know, Curtis Samuel, Marquise Valdez, Scantling, you know, I'm still, I'm still into Dante Pettis if you're going to give him to me in the ninth and I don't have to pay a sixth round for him. So I like the idea now, I think it's much more viable now than it was two or three weeks ago to be willing to go against the grain, you know, and start with two receivers, especially if you're down on the other end and you still, and you have a chance to not totally just, you know, shoot yourself in the foot by missing on runner. I am right with you there. And I think me and Matt mentioned that on a podcast last week, uh, you know, especially like you said, in the back half of round one, I think starting wide receiver, wide receiver makes some sense. And I've never been a zero RB guy. And I, I still don't think I'd, I'd go into a draft planning to go that way. But I think if there's ever a year for it, it's this year with, you know, guys like Matt Breda, Darwin Thompson, Justice Hill, Alexander Madison. There, I think there's a lot of guys in the double digit rounds that, that could really pop this year. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm on board with it. Well, great stuff. Thanks for joining us today, Dwayne. Before you go, why don't you tell everybody, I know we hit it at the top, but why don't you tell everybody where they can find all your stuff? Sure. You know, you can find me at Twitter on Twitter at D-W-A-I-N-M-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-D. So that's Dwayne McFarland. You can also get my work at Football Guys. So I actually did an article just last Friday around drafting uh, in the 9 through 12 spots that talks just about what we were kind of laying out and, and lays out what the options at runner look like and how you can think about your roster construction, whether you want it to be upside floors, a mix of both. So I detail that there. And then I also write for Matt Waldman RSP. So you can find that work at www.mattwaldmanrsp.com. Um, I sh- will probably be putting out a couple things, you know, there later this week or early next week. Um, you know, James Washington, very likely to be, you know, one of those topics. And you guys can also find me um, at, at FF Hustle on Twitter. So that's the handle for a podcast I do with my podcast uh, co-host, Brian Drake. And we do that every Tuesday. So we'll be recording that tonight. And basically that episode will really be about uh, just updating the draft plan. You know, we did this two weeks ago. So it'll be some of the things that we just talked about, but really, you know, then layering that end of all, layering all this information into the context of how it could impact your draft and how you can best use this to, you know, make better decisions and hopefully win fantasy championships. Awesome. Make sure you check out all that stuff from Dwayne. Dwayne, thanks very much for joining us today. No, thank you guys. That's going to do it for this edition of the Draft Sharks podcast. Head over to DraftSharks.com now to see how our rankings have changed through the preseason and to see who we're highlighting on your MVP board when your turn to pick comes around. There's still time to hop on board as a DS insider for the preseason. And then, of course, the regular season kicks off next week. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at DraftSharks. Jared is at SmolaDS. I am at ShoutDS. It's S-C-H-A-U-F. For Jared Smola and the rest of the DraftSharks crew, I'm Matt Shaft saying thanks so much for swimming with us.